I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. In the spring of 1997, New Labour were elected on a huge landslide, and Tony Blair, this fresh-faced, modern-seeming politician, the kind of guy who was good at football and who'd been in a rock band at university and who didn't always wear a tie, became Britain's youngest prime minister since the 1800s. And he came to power saying things like this. We will speak up for that decent, hard-working majority of the British people whose voice has been silent for all too long in our political life. If you read through the New Labour manifesto that got him elected, there's lots more of this kind of big picture stuff. Modernising the economy, investing in education, bringing people together. But, tucked away at the back, in a list of pledges under the heading, We Will Clean Up Politics, are three words that would be picked up by a journalist and used to set in motion the biggest parliamentary scandal in living memory. And those three words? Freedom of information. Millions of receipts of expenses claims by all MPs. The Daily Telegraph has obtained them all. The need to recognise and understand how angry people are. We locked these guys in a room and we just said, here's the disc, work out, start going through it. I'm Pete Norton and this is Expenses, a podcast about journalism, politics and what it's like to bring a huge national secret into the light. So a lot of it started with like local activism. I was living in Tower Hamlets and I was there was a lot of sort of problems around where I lived and I was trying to kind of be a very I was very American in those days and I was like, "Oh, here's the problem. Let's fix it." <laughs> That's Heather Brook. She's now a professor of journalism at City University of London, but she arrived in the UK around the same time as New Labour were taking office and promising to change the country. Brooke has British parents, but grew up in the States, where, as a young woman, she'd spent several years working as a newspaper reporter. And when she moved to London and started noticing these problems in the borough where she lived, rubbish piling up, street crime, police who wouldn't respond to calls, she found that the system for getting them dealt with was a bit less constitutional here than it is in the US. Well, initially I talked to the council and I would try and go to meetings because I was used, as a reporter, I was used to going to local council meetings. And then I went to them in in, um, in Tower Hamlets and they were not the same <laughs> as the ones I had covered in America. And um, there, there wasn't the same way where 
citizens could kind of go onto the floor and and sort of help set the agenda or have their say and be listened to, I felt like it was already predetermined. And also there were so many councillors that it wasn't clear who had any actual power. It was such a diffuse kind of informal uh, system. In America, everything's quite simple and codified. Um, so you kind of, you know, you know the system and it's all written out, like here's who has what power. Um, but, but in England, I, it was really confusing. Over the next 10 years, this sense of frustration with British politics and a rather un-British determination to do something about it would drive Brooke on to something remarkable. She became a leading expert on freedom of information in the UK and would use the new law as a lever to help prise open the expenses scandal. Without her, the whole story might never have come to light. But before we get into any of that, we needed to cover off a really basic question. What is freedom of information? There's two ways I would describe freedom of information. One is the kind of a the mechanical definition, which is it's a piece of law that... Uh, allows the public to uh, a statutory right to official information. That's that's the law. But more than that, in a sort of philis- political philosophy way, it is a symbol of where power lies in a government. Do the public have a right to know? And that's what FOI is. It's giving the public a right to know what, uh, you know, what the people who govern us are doing in our name with our money. The law went in on the books in 2000, but they were given a five-year leeway before it came into force. Right. And supposedly that was to get them ready and prepared. But what I discovered when I was researching Your Right to Know, which is a guide to freedom of information, is that most of the departments I contacted were not, um, they had only just started their preparations, and this was in 2004. BBC made a drama of this story and of your involvement in it called On Expenses. Yes. And there's a scene in that where you're in the House of Parliament talking to a receptionist there and asking her... And I want to know the name of the person preparing for the introduction of the Freedom of Information Act. She says... Freedom of But that was broadly your experience, not necessarily in person, but that was... Yeah, they didn't yeah. know what it was. A lot, a lot of the people, a lot of the sort of when I would call in, didn't have a freedom of information officer. They hadn't heard of the law. They certainly hadn't made any preparations for it. Um, it's sort of it, yeah, it's sort of reminding me of like Brexit right now. Mm. Um, and obviously, it wasn't as uh, it wasn't as earth shattering as Brexit, but it was the same thing where it was like there was this quite important law coming on the books, and there didn't seem to be a lot of uh, awareness or preparation for it. In 2005, in spite of the government being woefully underprepared for it, the law came into effect. And soon after that, Brooke put in a freedom of information request, a fateful freedom of information request, as it turned out, for details of the expense claims for every single MP in Parliament. And over the next few years, this claim would wind its way through tribunals and courts, being resisted by Parliament, debated by judges, and inching its way, torturously, towards a final ruling. As in any case where scores of lawyers get involved, it's easy for the story to become rather abstract and confusing here. But there's a key bit of context, a hard kernel at the heart of all the legal wrangling, which can help to unlock things. And to do that, here's Brooke describing what a freedom of information request actually looks like. It has to be in writing. So it has to be either a letter or an email. 
it can't just be on the telephone. So yeah, it has to be in writing. And then really beyond that, it doesn't have, um, you, you, know, you can write it however you want. You don't need to mention the law, um, but it's obviously helpful if you do. And then you just state what, what information it is that you want. Right. And you write and you send it to the, the agency that holds that information. And then they have 20 working days to respond. And what, if it's successful, what, what's the outcome? Are you expecting a shoebox full of photocopied paper or is it on a USB drive? Or what, what, do you, what do you expect back in return? Well, ideally, you expect back the answers to the question you asked. So, yeah, if you, if you asked for MP's expenses, you expect to get all that information. Um, and there's different ways you can get it. You can either get it in paper format or digitized or you can go and inspect the record. Um, so, yeah, I don't know how they recorded, I didn't know how Parliament recorded the data. So I, I kind of imagined it was just pieces of paper. So, you know, I had said in my request, like I would come and inspect the record, which is what I had done in Washington State, which is basically to go in and look through all the boxes. And how do you think they viewed you at the time? Like, did, did they see you as a, as a, as a busybody or as a... As I mean, a, I have no, I, I really don't have any idea. Yeah. Um, Were they kind of faultlessly polite in their, um, in their dealings with you? It was always... Yeah, we had a very formal relationship because, you know, eventually when I spoke on the phone, they said, well, you need to put it in writing, which I did. And that was the freedom freedom of information request. Yeah. And then they rejected it. So then that was our correspondence was generally through uh, letters. Having come from America, where these sorts of requests are handled quite differently, did you sense something strange having evolved here, the way these departments were treating you? I was always struck with this antagonistic attitude that uh, public officials had towards me as a member of the public. Not even me as a journalist, because I wasn't a, I wasn't a known journalist at that time. I was mostly just a citizen. And yeah, the, the sort of antagonism towards uh, answering basic questions, like basic civics questions... I found it really sort of shocking, actually, and really depressing and kind of outrageous, especially for a democracy. Um, you know, you can't go around calling yourself a democracy if you treat your public like absolute garbage and don't give them, like, the basic information about how you as a public agency are spending their money. Do you think there was any element there, as you as a, a young American woman in this time, was there any element of it that, where that coloured it for them, where you were an outsider in more ways than one to them? I mean, maybe, yeah, if, I'd gotten, if I was a man and I went to Eton, <laughs> I could have called up my old friend in the cabinet office uh, and probably, you know, got what sort I needed. Sort of out over lunch. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm sure that that's uh, one way of doing things. I mean, I guess, yeah, that is that is a point that you make because I came here, even though I'm a dual citizen, I didn't, I didn't have any contacts in London or Britain or the British establishment. And... Um, that is that is a lot how business gets done here. It is an informal patronage network, and I didn't have any patrons or knew it. I didn't know anybody, so the only thing I had was this law, you know, like a statutory right to access, which is really why I sort of hung everything on that law because it was it was the way I was going to be able to do the kind of journalism I wanted to do in Britain because I didn't want to take people out to lunch or bars or have to pay them off or hack into phones or any of those things. Um, it wasn't how I was trained to be a journalist. Like I was trained to dig around in public records and find stories. Mm. 
I mean, talk to people as well. But um, but that was like primarily I would I, I did most of my research through public records. For most people, the grind of what followed for Brooke, years and years of having to push and fight to get these information requests through tribunals, appeals and court hearings, with expensive government lawyers resisting at every turn, would have been unendurable. Even hardened campaigners might have looked at it and thought, life's just too short. But not Brooke. She gritted her teeth and kept going for years. And we're going to hear what was driving her and how she managed it right after this. Hi, my name's Ashley Kirk, and I'm a senior data journalist at The Telegraph, which basically means that I spend my time trawling through data sets to try and find stories hidden in the numbers. For the 10th anniversary of the paper's work on expenses, I wanted to find out if things really have changed over the last decade, and to see whether MPs are claiming more or less in expense today. So, alongside my colleagues in The Telegraph's new formats department, I built a tool that allows you to find out how much your current MP is claiming and to see how their claims compare to other MPs across the UK. To try it for yourself, head to telegraph.co.uk forward slash expenses or click on the link in the show notes to this episode. What was driving me? Good question. I know when they did that drama, the screenwriter asked me quite a long time, about, like, what was your motivation? And it's hard to pin down what is the motivation for um, doing the kind of thing that I do, uh, which I think is like the motivation for a lot of investigative journalists. I guess where most normal people kind of get rejected or obstructed and they sort of can't be bothered anymore. They go away. There was something in me that it really got under my skin. I took it quite personally and... Um, Their rejection of, yeah. of your legitimate, what you yeah. saw as your legitimate claim to information. Yeah, and it, and, it, and I did take it quite personally and I got um, really kind of offended about it and wanted to fight them on it. Uh, really wanted to get to the bottom of it as mm. well. Brooke did a huge amount of the legal work on these cases herself, boning up on the law, writing her own skeleton arguments, representing herself in front of judges. She was basically Freedom of Information's answer to Erin Brockovich. As the case progressed through the courts, Brooke did eventually partner up with a lawyer who admired what she was doing and offered to represent her pro bono. But the legal forces ranged against the two of them were still almost comically imposing. There was a lot of lawyers in this case. Um, you know, I had, I had one, but Parliament had um, the Treasury solicitor, it had its own um, solicitor, and it had a two barristers in the high court. And um, and then there was the information commissioner who was also there and also had their own barrister. So there was, there was, a, there was a real bean feast of lawyers right. and I would have been liable for all their costs if I'd lost. Did you have an estimate on that? Um, yeah, it was between 250 and 500,000 pounds. Right. So, so pretty hefty. Pretty hefty, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So this appeal progresses to the highest court in the land, the high court, and then... Finally gets seen by a judge, 2008. Three judges, actually. Three, three judges. Three of England's top judges. And they rule? They rule that um, the tribunal was correct in its judgment and that Parliament had to release all of the expense claims and the addresses of their second home. So it's huge vindication for you. Yeah. yeah. It was an absolute well, total win. Yeah. 
This high court ruling, a slam dunk for Brooks' case, was in May 2008. It said that Parliament would now have to publish the full expense claims with receipts for all MPs serving between 2004 and 2008. The publication date was set for October of that year, giving officials enough time to digitise the papers and black out any information like bank account details, medical reports and telephone numbers, which might compromise an MP's privacy or security. But then something happened. Something which looked rather... suspicious. First, Parliament shifted the deadline for publication from October to December. Then this new December deadline slipped by and nothing was published. And then, just after Christmas, in January of 2009, Harriet Harman, the leader of the House, which is the minister in charge of organising government business in the Commons, unexpectedly tabled a motion which, if passed, would retrospectively exempt MPs' expenses from the Freedom of Information Act. Ten years on, it seems remarkable, not to mention darkly funny, that it played out like this, with Parliament, the grandest institution in the land, behaving like a surly teenager, first avoiding their homework and then, in a light bulb moment, proposing to have homework abolished altogether. The writers of The Thick of It, or Yes Minister, could hardly have scripted it better. But, just as for the hapless politicians in those TV comedies, comeuppance also wasn't very far around the corner for the class of 2009. Under mounting pressure, Harman's motion to exempt expenses was dropped. A new publication date of July the 1st was set for the documents, and then events took over when the leaked, completely uncensored copy of all the expense claims found their way to The Telegraph, who started to publish their findings in early May. We'll continue to unpack the story of how that happened and what The Telegraph had to do to get their reporting to press in future episodes of this podcast. But to come back to Heather Brook, what did it feel like after years of tirelessly campaigning for this information to come to light via public channels, all those appeals and tribunals and waiting, to suddenly find out on May the 8th that a newspaper had got them wholesale and had scooped everyone else. Was it bittersweet? Well, I don't think that we knew exactly what the Telegraph had initially or how they were going to play it on that first day. Because on the first day, it was about the cabinet expenses and it wasn't clear. So I was sort of worried because I wondered, oh, are they going to just pick out, they're going to do that thing that the British press does where they pick out a few bad apples or, you know, they just like zero in on some personality and it wasn't until sort of the end of the week that I really got a sense that the Telegraph was going after everyone. Yeah, you're right. It was a bittersweet because I would have loved, 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 loved to have been in that bunker room going, like I would have loved to have seen that data set. Yeah. Um, that was really what I was, you know, trying to get hold of. Yeah. I mean, not and not for myself personally, I wanted it to be a public asset, you know, that any member of the public could look up their MP's expenses. To jump 10 years forward and bring us into the present moment, on one level, quite a lot has changed. As a result of the scandal, we've got a new independent body in charge of MPs' expenses and pay, and new rules governing what can be claimed for. Freedom of information is also taken more seriously across government in 2019 than it was then. Departments publish their own guides to making FOI requests online, journalists pressing to get access to public information are no longer viewed as visitors from another planet, and it seems highly unlikely now that you'd run into anyone in the House of Commons who would profess not to know what freedom of information actually was. But as someone who has worked on the coalface of this for well over a decade and who has seen firsthand the British Parliament's capacity to resist change, Heather Brook is perhaps better placed than anyone 
to assess the scope of what happened. So I asked her, was a new era of transparency really ushered in by the expenses scandal? Or has business more or less returned to usual in Westminster? There's certainly been some efforts to, to, to have a transparency agenda, and there's been a lot of good work done, particularly around the area of, of open data and opening up data assets that governments have. When it comes to more, I would say, politically meaningful data, like government budget details, those are much harder to get hold of. And when it comes to decision-making, that's even harder to get, get a hold of. So... Certainly, we've made some steps. I feel like there is a lot more to do. Do you think there's still a fundamental problem that it's, it's about whether governments have a right to secrecy versus the public having a right to know? Is that are we still is the balance still tipped way towards governments have a right to secrecy in this country? The culture is definitely around secrecy, yeah, and it hasn't shifted uh, enough. the The law is very clear. It's meant the default is the public have a right to know, and so you know there it, the information should be released unless there's a good reason, you know, there's a legal and reason not to. But I still, you know, all my students are making FOIs all the time, and they continually find that the default is that you know how can we obstruct this request. It's like that's sort of a lot of times the, first, the the starting point, and that's that's worrying because you know the more the more public officials are like that, the more it uh, alienates the public, and they start to think, well, what good are you? Like, what good is this institution? Like, we can't even find anything out. You're not being straight with us. Um, we don't know what you do. We're trying to find out. You're just an unhelpful and obstructive. And then it it seems like a really kind of short termist mentality for, for, for a public official. Like you, you really want to engage your populace and make them feel like, you know, they're part of what you're doing. They're a partner. And do you think that plays to a, a wider theme here, which is that, you know, you can view the expenses story and the fallout from that as part of a, a road that led us towards Brexit? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. You know, all that disillusionment, discontent that came out from MPs' expenses, w w did it get resolved? I don't think most people will, will, will say that it was satisfactorily resolved. What's the solution? I mean, we're trying to figure that out. How do we do politics in this, you know, in an age where everybody can represent themselves online? So there has to be some kind of new way forward. It seems easy to look at this story and to feel a bit like the wagons have circled again and that there's an enormous amount of weight against a, a kind of a big sea change here. Do you think it's plausible that something like that will, will happen? Certainly we're at this like really crucial time in political development where, you know, we're, we're coming to the end of representative democracy. A lot of people feel like it doesn't work for them and they're ditching it in, in different forms. And an alternative hasn't presented itself yet. And so it's really imperative on our political institutions to evolve and reform pretty robustly if they want to still be relevant to the majority of people. And, and that's what's worrying to me right now is that it seems like it's just a battening down the hatches kind of thing that's happening where nobody's coming forward with a vision of how we can do politics in the future. And so they're just going into full defense mode. And that only further alienates the public. 
democracy only works with informed citizens. So it is an obligation on all of us, like the very minimal obligation that we have is to be informed. So it's to, you know, read good quality news. Like you can't just get your news for free because you get what you pay for. Heather Brooke, thank you very much indeed. Thanks. Expenses is produced by me, Pete Norton, and Theodora Leludis. We're mixed by David Crackles, and our theme music was composed by Elliot Lampitt, who also helped edit this episode. Special thanks this week to Danny Robinson and John Norton. In our next episode, we'll be talking to a former MP, Norman Baker, who also played a key role in bringing the story to light, and who shares a rarely heard insider's perspective on the expenses system. Don't miss it. If you want to get in touch with us before then, we're podcasts, plural, at telegraph.co.uk. And there's also a link to that address in the show notes. And finally, if you're enjoying this podcast and haven't already left a review for it wherever you listen, please consider doing so. The comments and ratings that you've already left for us in our first couple of weeks have made a really big difference to the show's ranking on Apple Podcasts, which in turn really helps other people to find us. Decent, hardworking people. Thanks, Tony. See you next week. No, but it's good because I get a lot of lazy journalists who do almost zero work and just look up Wikipedia. Yeah. And I always tell my students because I, I I'm always trying to teach, well, they always complain about people not wanting to do interviews with them, especially because they're students. And I say, like, one of the main things you can do if you want to, like, impress people or is just to let them know that you've actually, like, looked into them, backgrounded them. Because it, def- it definitely makes you feel like, oh, well, at least they know. I don't have to explain everything from scratch. Yeah. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.